starting a war with God. Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. And I'm your other host, Chris. And last time on Left for Dread, we were in the Devil's Carnival. <laughs> and now we're back. We're, we're gonna we're we're sneaking to heaven, uh, and we're sneaking in a whole bunch of lovely people with us. So we have a big party uh, today. We do. Um, we do. So we have a whole fucking train full of souls with us today, guys. <laughs> um, so I know we're not actually sitting in a circle, but who wants to go start? Well, let's pretend that we are all sitting in a giant circle across the nation, as as we are. We can we can map out like all of the the infernal corners, like in our in our routes later on. But <laughs> my name's Livy Mueller, and uh, I'm an actress. I was hired to do Emily Autumn's Fight Like a Girl video, and I got to know Darren Bowsman, and he offered me a part in uh, in the sequel to Devil's Carnival. So I went out to LA and did my first full feature-length Bowsman piece, and it was a really good experience. I think of all the films he's ever worked on, he had the best time doing Hallelujah, and the the, the culture of, uh, like the professional culture there was really healthy and awesome, and I love indie sets. It was amazing. How do we follow that? Yeah, none of us want to follow that up at all. All right, I guess I'll, I'll go next, because mine is not as impressive. I'm Layla Zerbian. Yeah, I am not professionally in any of the arts. I'm just a big fan of like writing fan fiction and loving this movie. My name is Liv. I am a writer and editor, uh, not professionally affiliated with the Devil's Carnival in any way, just in the cult. My name is Carrie. Um, I live in Comac, New York, and I have no affiliation whatsoever, except I love this entire community so much. My name is C. I'm Carrie's spouse. Uh, also, no affiliation with any of this as well. A diehard fan of everything to do with the works of Darren, Terrence, and Sar for the last 12 plus. And that's how a carnival grows, y'all. Literally, in this case, as we actually have way more people this time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> really? Well, thank you. We are, we're on this, this giant soul train. We're gonna sneak into heaven um and we just we had such a fun time um two weeks before we reviewed repo uh we did the devil's carnival um and now we're following up with the devil's carnival hallelujah uh so layla would you like to give a quick recap about the movie yes so hallelujah is a combination prequel sequel where mm-hmm. To quote Lucifer, we remember the past so we may better destroy the future as the war between heaven and hell is building. That, yep, that's it. <laughs> that's the movie. <laughs> Brilliant. That's, it's beautiful. Beautiful. So uh, I believe this is Chris's first time watching the movie. Uh, yeah. So um, last week was the first time I ever watched Devil's Carnival, um, and I loved it. And this time around, I I was equally as enthralled. I I I really love like I it's still just as colorful and weird and grotesque and and like kishy and schlocky. Um but I just love not not just like the Devil's Carnival, but uh how every 
movie uh this creative team makes it, it just zeroes in on like a really um uh a really powerful aesthetic that's like really important to our, to culture and, and the arts uh and they just take it to 11 so you know in repo they took uh, elements of sci-fi cyberpunk industrial uh and um um and then for for this movie all uh especially with uh it focusing on heaven um it the aesthetic was totally like 1920s 1930s like big band like uh, all the all all like the the type of music like like swing jazz and all the all the costuming um and i loved i loved how they just oh it's so good i just love how they just take like a, a classic aesthetic and just give it their own stylish twist and just make it so over the top so colorful so dark all at the same time it's like it's like this it's like the most it's like the most powerful alchemy i've ever seen in my life so yeah i i really enjoyed this movie i i i, I was a great follow-up i um they really stepped up the game um i mean it's now feature length it's it's like an hour and a half instead of 58 minutes of the previous um i feel like the cast the the ensemble cast is just as impressive or even more i mean like i had no idea david hasselhoff was going to be in there or, and the tech nine showed up um geez it was like they oh and then um i keep forgetting that guy's name the guy from rent adam pascal that's right um yeah so they they oh gosh like um like going back to paul savino and his role as god and the toy maker like Darren and Terrence, you know, they really got to play with all their toys. Like I know, um, oh, uh, Darren, he's a huge fan of Jesus Christ Superstar. So they got what's his name, Tim Tim Teeley, Ted Neely. Neely. That's right. So sorry. Yeah. Uh, so they got him to come in, um, and like they just got all their favorite people. Now listen, you can you can forget all the biblical names you want. Yeah. Don't you forget about <laughs> Ted Neely. I mean. God is great, but he is no Ted Neely. This is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's those are my initial thoughts. Like it, it, it's just it. It was just everything that was great about the original, but just bigger. And um, yeah, it was. And we got to see a whole different side. I, I, I thought it was really interesting to see um, uh, this one super structure of a uh, aesop fable framing the entire narrative and art and architecture per se of of heaven and how it's it's how it itself is broken too uh yeah that, it was great i loved it and i'm so good i'm so happy we have so many people here to like share their thoughts on it who have a lot more experience a lot more thoughts a lot more insights than i do so yeah take it away how do you like the concept of heaven as a film studio rather than the earlier uh, library concept that was pitched? Um, yeah, I I thought it was uh, I thought it was really interesting. Like, um, I mean, not just like the nineteen thirties, but like it was framed like as like the golden age of Hollywood. Um, and with it being a film studio, um, I could see like different angles to that. Like one, like God, God as creator, so God as like this 
majestic producer, author, writer, director. Um, and what I thought about, like how they represented Paul Savino a little bit in the, in the last film and now this film, like I feel like this, he's like a, uh, a director slash a god who's very narcissistic. He's all, he's he's all about the god as in the, with the capital G. He deserve he he craves worship and he 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 feeds on his own press. He feeds on his own reputation. And uh, I thought that was a very yes. And everyone, yeah, everyone who works for him in Heavenly Productions Incorporated is sort of built like like a studio executive to be obsequious and to grovel and to to praise like to praise the ego of a studio head because their talent created everything. You know, it's very like I loved it. It was very Weinstein. It was it was very um like the the culture of power is so different in heaven than it is in hell and the idea that a carnival versus a, a film studio uh you you could say that a film studio really is just a carnival with cameras, but the carnival has a more honest see the, the the carnival has a more honest entertainment value than i think a film studio because film is a lot of like cinema itself is built on artifice and built on um prestige and built on uh obscene wealth and just things you don't really associate with carnivals where uh carnivals are like more about impoverished people just uh finding a job that they can travel and maybe escape legal issues with and i all the things that go into um the concept i really really admire the the film studio concept as you can tell because i'm uh as soon as that early trailer came out with the library and silence is golden and then we all saw ben get his tongue cut out by tech nine and it was awesome but uh it was it was a disappointment to know that 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 we were just gonna deal with like a very subdued version of the carnival and so when it uh when a screenplay rewrite was necessitated and it expanded into heavenly productions incorporated i was thrilled <laughs> i don't think they could have sustained a library for a full hour and a half do you i feel like that setting would have been so much smaller no <laughs> yeah so for me i because i don't have the film background so for me what i'm looking at the way God is and the way his followers followers are, I actually sort of saw it more as, uh, you know, if 1930 Jazz Age America had North Korea style dictatorship, because during Bells of the Black Sunday, you know, he's just kind of walking around and being goofy, but everyone is like fanning themselves like, ah, oh my God, it's God. And I'm like, I've seen videos of people in North Korea act like that about their leader. And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, totalitarian governments, like, you must love this person, you have no choice, he is the best because we say so. I mean, sadly, even, I mean, not to get overly political, but coming off what Layla just said, even looking at, you know, U.S. politics now, it's kind of not that dissimilar from the way a lot of, you know, our president's followers look at him, like, he is, like, almost, they treat him like a god, and he wants to be treated like a god. Yeah, yeah, because, like, the the tyranny uh the tyranny escalates the less um the less the hero is worshipped you know in his own mind so the the fact that everyone in heaven yeah they could they could earnestly have this devotion to their god but at the same time they could also fear his retribution and just worship him as as the koreans worship kim kim jong-un yeah but also ju jumping back talking about like the differences with the movie and the carnival also like even it's such an opposite form of entertainment from um 
like somebody uh, viewing it. Like you go to the movies, you sit back, you relax, you watch it, you don't speak, you're not part of it. You go to a carnival, you're so involved, you're you're very much a part of everything that you're seeing and interacting with too. Yeah, there's a transparency in Devil's Carnival that the, that Heavenly Productions Incorporated replaces with this sort of clandestine um, need to know basis kind of uh, subservience. And there is subservience in the carnival, but it's more honest. <laughs> It's really something I actually noticed on this watch that I had never noticed before because you really, um, I think there is like one scene uh, uh, dividing these two scenes. I think it's Bells of the Black Sunday, if I'm not mistaken about the order. But if you look at um, the agent and God's discussion before he sends the agent down to hell versus the ticket keeper and Lucifer's discussion about the plan, about what the plan is for, for the war. I mean, we're jumping ahead way to the end of the movie, but like, I noticed that those two conversations are kind of next to each other and meant to highlight how different the transparency is. The conversation between uh, the agent and God is, I wish I knew your ways and, and God kind of fobbing the agent off being like, how long have we known each other? You know what I'm doing. And, and nobody really has any idea. And then the ticket keeper and Lucifer's conversation is about like, um, when the trains come, I will be on the tracks at your side. It's like the ticket keeper realizing that there is that the transparency is lacking right now as Lucifer is giving his plan to paint a doll and not to the rest of the carnival. But then the conversation becomes about like, I want to help you. I want to be next to you. So where everybody in Heavenly Productions is working in service of, um, of God, I think the Lucifer is kind of more about keeping everybody abreast and like everybody being a team and there is subservience as Libby was saying but it's also about the whole arc of the story is um June becoming doll and being embraced into the carnival and so I think it's more about like we're all in this together we're all working this together as opposed to sort of the top-down uh mechanics of the way Heavenly Productions works I I love you know going in that and towards that scene in the end like that again with that comparison, like they're talking, and, and like you said, uh, Liv, when Lucifer says, I'm going to be right there with you, comparing to up in heaven. And, you know, I think in some ways, especially when um, the agent unwraps the book um, of Aesop's Fables, you know, it's, I think the agent knows he's kind of being sent on a suicide mission of sorts. Like, and I, my, I think I noticed it for the first time ever on this most recent rewatch. I love the fact that and I never noticed it again. I just said that. I'm sorry. I apologize. When God says to him, I think he says to him, I love you like a son. And then he suddenly stops and he says, like, I just gave myself an idea. And I noticed, I was like, did he just, like, come up with the idea of Jesus in the movie? Like, I mean, I don't know when it's set up like the, tw- like the 20s, but, like, he's essentially, he's, I love you like a son. And he's sending him down to his death in every sense of Oh, I didn't think about that as the line. That's great. That's so great. Oh, my God. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, that. That line, I knew that line had some significance. I, I wasn't part of any of the, the filming process or any of Adam and Paul's private scenes together. But uh, a friend of mine was, and I'll tell you about the, the opening scene where he's fixing up Lauren's um, facial sutures in a minute. But uh, there was this, um, this screening that I went to where I just screamed out as soon as, as, soon as Paul says the line, um, says, I love you like a son. Uh, I shouted, we all know how that works out. And 
people chuckled at it. So I thought like, okay, there has to be some reason that line is in there because otherwise there, there's no way that Terrence wasn't going for the crucifixion joke there. He's really, uh, he's really obsessed with it. And he puts all these like Catholic tidbits in all of his works, including Repo. And so I, I was like, huh, well, that's a little awkward on the delivery, but the timing makes all the sense now. I cannot utterly believe I didn't think of that. I just thought of the movie as taking place post 1920s and I had no idea it was a timeless story. <laughs> Libby, I'm so glad you did that at, on, at your show because I actually, you and I are mind melded. I did that in New York when I, when I went to the tour, uh, right after Good that for line. for you. I remember, it begs to be. It does. <laughs> and I was, and I, I didn't want, I thought I was not going to be the only one who did it, but I actually, I, I think what I shouted out was remember what happened to Jesus, bro. And like the, the room just kind of cracked up. There were a few, like in the, in the road commentary, you can see people reacting to that line occasionally. And Somewhere out there, Spooky must have hours and hours of footage of like people throwing popcorn going, shit, run, bro! Oh, I was like, we, we all tend to turn into the, the, the consummate scary movie audience when we're going to see an indie film that we know everyone did for free. So we're like, ah, it's a passion project for them. We're gonna throw all the things. It's gonna be amazing. And they love it. You know, they're sitting there in the theater with you. That's the, the loveliness of a road tour. I kind of want to roll back a bit because when Liv was talking about the key ticket keeper, all I could think of is my sermon is coming. <laughs> because um, I, I need to talk about this character because, well, he, he's actually my, I know it's kind of jumping ahead, but he is my favorite character of this movie. And the reason for it, though, is... Um, I don't know about most of you when you watch Devil's Carnival for the first time, but I was suspicious as fuck of this character. He did not make sense in hell for me because I'm like, so you're, you know, Lucifer's second hand, like right hand man, but you don't enjoy torture. And if anything, you were trying to help John. And I was convinced that if there was going to be a war, he would be a double agent. Because, yeah, he didn't really fit in into hell to me. And then comes this movie and especially that ending scene and now one of my like top two favorite scenes like I actually used that his part as an audition and got into a show that way was awesome but once I saw the way they interacted it finally clicked to me what this man is and it's actually quite similar to what you guys were saying earlier so as far as I'm aware it seems like Liver is you know basically the teenager who rebelled against his dad and got thrown out and all of the other carnies are also like teenagers who got thrown out so now they're just partying because you know fuck you dad ticket keeper to me seems more like an adult who resigned from a company because of their shady ethics mm. and oh i love which, that but like yeah like like to find out that there was a scandal so he left which to me it also explains his frustration in this movie because what he hated about what was going on with Lucifer was he didn't know the plan. He didn't know if there even was a plan. And he was like, you know, you're going to just destroy everything because I don't know what the fuck is happening. But the second Lucifer tells him the truth, it's and just being like, you know, all he asks is, you know, what happens if it goes wrong? What do we do now? He was on board the second Lucifer finally became honest with him again. Even if he doesn't like torture, even if he doesn't like that they're at risk of destroying everything, the honesty is what matters to him at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and he doesn't, like, Lucifer doesn't fear losing his power like God does. And so his his final willingness to open up the Ticket Keeper uh, just assuaged assuaged any doubt that the Ticket Keeper had that that uh, the boss man can run this thing. Like, you don't need to take the reins just yet. Like, he's he really does have a plan. And he's finally going to tell you. Although he doesn't it. like the plan. No, he doesn't. Well, I don't <laughs> like the plan either. I understand I his skepticism. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Now, when you watch it again and you realize that the bayonets, the first plan that the, like the first bayonet gave a plan and he was like, these are horrible plans, but that one yeah, is exactly yeah. what Lucifer did. <laughs> That's true. They all come true. Oh, but you only see the first one. You haven't seen like, you know, storming heaven or I don't know, just like, you know, just kind of like sending people in after them. No, you get the tea party. <laughs> Pretty much, without the without Lucifer's With little, his pink, little hat, pink hat, you still I love get so much. the poison drink. Yep, it was just fantastic. Probably one of my favorite line readings. If anybody cosplays like the translators, you better put the tea hats on. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Oh my god, the translators definitely were a thing that I enjoy more and more with every rewatch like i i appreciate those performances more and more every time i watch it like i just somehow noticed on this watch all the acting when they're like listening in behind the door as the agent and and june are having their first conversation together it was so funny like they're they're so hilarious together it's great yeah darren originally offered the the other translator role one to jimmy and one to another musician and he could he didn't have a confirmation on the other musician and Jimmy said, Well, I'll I'll give you a confirmation and sign a contract now if you let my wife be the other one. To fantastic effect. Thank you, Jimmy. Like this, yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, it's funny watching like the behind the scenes because it's like, oh yeah, like this is just what they're like. They are the translators. And then you'll see things Pulsarino. Yeah, he just is God. And just like every and, oh, and the Hoff. <laughs> The Hoff is the, the Hoff. The is just himself. I feel yeah. like a lot of these characters were just the actors being themselves. I feel like the Hoff does not remember he was in that movie. Like, I really feel like the Hoff just does not remember that he did this film at all. He did show up to his first production meeting wearing a mask of himself. And so he, he could duck into the, yeah, so he could duck into the studio from the curbside without being recognized as himself. <laughs> The Hoff has arrived. I still love the comparison that, you know, the translators and they said they base their a lot of their performance on the weasels from Roger Rabbit. Meanwhile, on the op and they're kind of like the comedic, you know, element of heaven. And then you've got the comedic element of hell, which is the magician based on Roger Rabbit. Oh, wow. yeah, that's a good point. Oh, my God. Is is that legit? Oh, my God. That's really good because they really are those weasels. That's yeah, they said in, in one of the docs, they said that their inspiration for their characters came from the Weasels and Roger Rabbit, but also anything that was sort of cartoony duos like the Siamese Cats from Lady and the Tramp or Flotsam and Jetsam from The Little Mermaid. So anything Wait, that sorry, could... I'm just thinking now, if, if they ever do future sequels, can we have a movie where it's between the translators and the magician? Please, please. Yes, yes. Well, Darren even said he could do a million and one spinoffs with just the translators because he loved what they did with it so much. 
Yeah, just the translators. And now both their daughters need to go to college. So get it together, Darren. So they need that it. money. Yeah. Oh, my God. That They could be the B plot in that in the sequel where it's just God and Lucifer sitting at a table insulting each other for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> like, And yeah. the two of them just improving it, which is a movie that, that Terrence wants that I want so much more than I have ever wanted anything in my life. Like, I that would be so great. I want to touch on something that we talked about um on the last episode that I really like that they continued and really brought into this one. Uh, one of the lines that I think we all went back to that we really enjoyed from Devil's Carnival was, um, I'm not in the habit of killing, of murdering innocent children. That's God's jurisdiction. It paints God in this really evil, uh, like, dictatory role. And I know that that can offend a lot of people. However, they really put that at the forefront in this movie and again just squealing pure joy when i saw um how he wanted to fix one of the girls when she thought she was going to become a number one um he was like oh i'll i'll put the translators right on it and he says ruthless am i not and the agent responds with like no other like their god is a totally ruthless and totalitarian god and lucifer is the one that is welcoming people with open arms and creating this sense of family and you really 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 fucking saw that in this movie and it's part of why i watch it so much uh right two th- uh two things um i remember it was that one scene where the agent is serenading june and one one of the ladies of virtue she had a rictus grin was that the same that's her yeah that's her she got fixed okay that was awesome uh and creepy <laughs> you think that's awesome chris <laughs> she had to be fixed because her her cheeks were frowning. her cheeks are frowning <laughs> i love that in the next scene that in um in cloud serenade when god actually sees her getting like gets, like startled he's like oh my god what the fuck was that he rolls his eyes like he doesn't want to look at her oh yeah okay so that's um I think that was something that, Rye, you and I started talking about off mic. One of the things that I thought was really, really interesting about this watch is in the final scene in Hoof and Lap. Um, oh, yes. The yes. agent goes up to June and he he can't look at her after what they've done to her. Her face is is completely mashed in and he actually like turns away and really doesn't look at her a lot for the rest of Hoof and Lap. Like he, he can't really meet her eyes, which and I saw that in in comparison to that same scene that C just pointed out where where um God sees the the lady of virtue who he's had uh, mutilated and then can't look at her and I found that so interesting that like he wants these creations put in place like he wants um you know never send that one to me again her cheeks were frowning and he he makes this happen but then he can't look at the results and just like that the agent cannot look at the results of what he's done to june who has now become doll so that was something i was in, i saw on this rewatch yeah meanwhile when lucifer is like, talking to june for the first time well singing to june you know he's touching her cracked face to coax her and be like it's okay you can let go you can join us. <laughs> yeah, we don't judge ugliness down here. That's that's a god thing. Exactly. One of the one of the things that um Terrence said in Only by Design, um he was talking about how like Lucifer is a showman in all of this and in uh after the fall, he still has that suit on. 
like he's still holding on to that little bit of heaven um and the whole oh wow yeah so like that whole line of when they say um uptown they uh what is it uptown they build cathedrals or no it's not that line it's something about like them being uptown in like heaven and them being downtown in hell it's sort of him saying like we don't have the fancy things that they do upstairs but we're all still just as beautiful. Yeah, up, uptown they sprinkle sweetener, which is awesome because he could have said yes. sugar, but he said yeah. the artificial one. All these like intentional things that you not necessarily take for granted, but you just sort of like gloss over while you're watching it. And then you watch it multiple times or you watch the doc for the first time in forever. And... It just makes all of these really intentional things come to the forefront and makes you look at things in a totally different light. Every single time. And every element, too. Like, every, every, all the different elements coming to you. I, I feel like, um, Chris, after I, I had to dip out early of the last episode, you asked something akin to, like, like accessibility. Something about, like, the accessibility of, like the accessibility of, of each film and about the, like, I, I, for me, my brain kind of transmuted that into like the watchability of these films. And I think that this one is the most, um, it, it is, I think it's the most accessible. I think partially that's a cast reason. I do feel like having, um, Adam Pascal to bring in the theater kids, Ted Neely to bring in the older, you know, theater crowd, Emily Autumn to bring in the, the goth kids. Like, I think there were a lot of like, slightly more famous people than than repo but i also think that because of the structure of the film it is the most watchable film because it is the one that like leans the most heavily into um story structure and film structure and i and i think that um june as as the heroine and as the protagonist is so compelling that i think that this one i think of the three might be the easiest to watch mm-hmm and I, I feel like we're going back to like the golden age of Hollywood and the 1930s setting, I think that's somewhat, uh, I think that's like an aesthetic that it's either it's been more romanticized or just been more filtered through like the, through like the zeitgeist that we live in or like just mainstream culture we live in. And like when you compare it to Repo where it's like cyberpunk and like Blade Runner mixed with like goth stuff, I feel like it's a lot more niche. Uh, so it's, uh, in terms of accessibility, I think I could see why uh, Darren said like this movie would be more accessible or available to viewers. Um, that being said, I it still it still has its own merits, and I I still it, and I I yeah I I feel like if the more the the water net you cast uh, you cast um, whether it's through that medium of like casting a big name uh, or big big ensemble cast or 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 in terms of a story architecture where it's more it's more of like a standardized uh i guess it's more standard than the previous one like yeah that that's just the way for people like me who never saw or never heard of devil's carnival before just to like get in and find my own reasons why i like it and then and i i infect other people and then i bring them to the cult so i i'm all for it <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, keep in mind that Devil's Carnival episode one was called episode one because it was a TV pitch and none of the networks wanted to pick it up. Yeah, that's definitely something I learned on the last episode. Layla told me that and I didn't, I didn't actually know that. So that was, yeah. 
And so when none of the networks picked it up, it just sat on the shelf. And then uh, Darren was like, well, I did a road tour once and it nearly killed me. So let's do it again. And it worked. I mean, it, it gave rise to more road tours, but then um, they got funding together from Cleopatra. They, they did a full length feature film and decided that, because by that time, um, Emily's friendship with Darren and Laura was really well developed, especially when they were all living in LA. Like before she moved from Chicago, um, they they were just business acquaintances, but they're really close friends now. And they were closest when uh, when she made her move to Hollywood. And so then I think that might have been the timing that coincided with Darren and Terrence deciding that that uh, that the angel of music for purposes of this feature film would be the June character. It was a good choice. It also had a lot to do with um, certain, I think, other cast members, um, like, not being able to have bigger parts. Like, I know uh, Mark Center was supposed to have a bigger part, and he got a TV show in Australia. Um, John was originally supposed to have a larger part, but um, his scheduled conflicts happened. Uh, we talked a little bit on uh, the last episode about um, Alexa Vega's conversion to uh, born-again Christianity, which brought her out of Alleluia. She didn't want to do it um, because of her, her religious beliefs. Yeah, there was a lot of that stuff, I think, around this film that 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 made the plot kind of mold into what it is, which I think is really interesting because I know very little about film. So I, I, I'm interested in how I love the story and I actually think the story is incredible. And it was built around a lot of like external factors and not just like this is the story we want to tell. It had to do a lot with like the group of people that they had got together, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I love that kind of, it's like, it's like the Robert Rodriguez school of filming, like Robert Rodriguez, like his first one was like uh, El Mariachi. And uh, he, that movie was built on like an extremely, extremely low budget. He wanted to make an action film. It was like, what do I have? Oh, I have an empty guitar case and a tortoise. Let's make a movie about that. And like, and like there was string and a duct tape with like, doing all these clever tricks and clever writing, you know, he made like a cult classic and a masterpiece. And I, I love the, the ingenuity that comes with low budget. Cause it just forces you to be creative about um, everything. These movies taught me a lot as an artist about failure. Like th these, these movies, I, I didn't get a real chance to say this about devil's carnival one, but I really felt like I was there like, for that movie actually being announced and like De uh, Darren coming to social media and saying like, this is what we're going to do. And we want you guys to help fund it. And I remember thinking at the time, like, and I, I think this about um, Terrence and Sar and their projects just in general, but like um, for those people who don't know, so like repo basically got uh, destroyed by Lionsgate. Like they made the movie, they were blocked from making the movie in a lot of ways with funding along the way. And then Lionsgate saw it and basically, hated it and gave it like a two city release like it was released basically nowhere there was no sort of marketing that was done for it and then they kept the rights to all the characters in the story so even if um you know darren and terrence and uh wanted to go and make further projects with these characters they couldn't because now Lionsgate owns own the rights and so you'd think that like after an experience like that they would be so demoralized that they would just be like yeah fuck it we're not going to do this anymore for me as a, as a young artist at the time this film came out i was probably like maybe 18 or 19 years old, I, it, it meant so much to me just to see how both that they, they came back and they made another movie, but like how they did it, like, okay, this is how we're going to avoid all the pitfalls that we had with the first film and how we're going to use 
the tortoise and the guitar case and what we have available to us and duct tape and like cast our friends. And so seeing, you know, watching the, the big jump in, I don't want to say quality, but the big jump in like what they had available to them from Devil's Carnival 1 to Alleluia is just really incredible for me as an artist. It's like, and, and then, you know, being a part of the community, we're all here and we're all on this podcast together and we're all friends. Most of us, you know, hang out a lot of the time and we are, you know, we're chosen family together. And like, for me, all of that has, has proven that like, if you make the art that you love, people will find it. Like, you know, the people who are meant to see it will see it. So these films, I mean, for that reason, for that kind of tortoise and guitar case reason, it's just incredible to me what they have made as a result of these, of these two films. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Darren likes to say he, he's, he doesn't say it in the right terms, uh, but and so not verbatim, but what, what he tries to say at almost every public appearance he makes is if I kick down a hundred doors and only one of them works, the other 99 were worth it. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that one of the, one of the things that really shows like how humble Terrence is about all of this and how humble he sort of continues to be, especially when you go to all the events that most of us have been to sorry chris um <laughs> you'll get there okay. one day one you're day. gonna get there i promise i we'll swear if i show up at the next tour stop without him we, we gotta we gotta fight the coronavirus ex- so we can exactly. get the back if on i show up to the next yeah. tour stop without chris y'all can kill me where i stand because i've said it so yeah, many times we're not letting it happen. like i need to bring him um one of the things that terrence said was it's crazy to know that your work matters even if it's to one person it's even crazier to know that it matters to thousands and i know he was talking about alleluia in this sense but think of the time when alleluia came out to now and all the other things that have happened since then and the amount of people that have caught on and come into all of this so that kind of goes off of what you were saying live like I don't mean to get repetitive, but that's literally how a carnival grows. Like he shows these passion projects and things that he loves and we can all see the work that he puts into it. And I don't, I think he very unintentionally has created this whole thing that matters so much to so many people. Now we're all going to cry. Yeah. That's goddamn beautiful, guys. A little bit now. Well said. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. This is why I record with alcohol so that when I have feelings, I can I just go. We can blame it. We can blame it on the alcohol. It's fine. It's I haven't okay. had any yet, guys. Blame it on the a- 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 alcohol. <laughs> so feelings aside, because I didn't mean to give everyone a case of the feels. Well, you did. Um, sorry. No, I think we need it. Um, Well, okay, so here's another jumping off point. Speaking of feelings, part of the whole beauty of the music of of Alleluia was that they didn't want to do any songs about feelings. They wanted, uh, especially in heaven, they wanted everything to function like a totalitarian government. So every song that they sing functions to serve God and his message and uh, Heavenly Productions Incorporated and everything that they're putting out. That blew my mind when Terrence first told us about that. That was really like I know, right? Oh my god, it totally blew me away. It's the anti music. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that really was a lot for me. 
Because um, I, I, I love like all of this is a lot for all I of love us. how much he hates musicals. Like, that's my favorite thing. My favorite thing is, like, just, just, like, how much he does not like the genre that he is in. And and it's not in this kind of, like, ironic way. It's not in this, like, oh, um, you know, like, they suck kind of way. It's like, um, like, for example, Adam Pascal really hates musicals, too. But it's in more of like a, I was supposed to be a rock star who like accidentally became a famous actor kind of way, which I find a little like off-putting. But um, I, I like how for this particular movie, they they made it a part of how they were going to write the film, which I thought was so interesting because I'm a poet and we do a lot of shit like that. We do a lot of like, let's put some arbitrary restrictions on ourselves and just see like what kind of weird parlor trick we can come up with. And then it'll be a poem or like, it'll be a whole book. So the, that was for me, like I, I definitely in my poet heart when, when Terrence is like, yeah, we, we didn't want to write any songs about feelings in our musical. I was like, Oh, that's genius. That's really brilliant. Like I, yeah, I, I, that was, that was really big for me. Very inspirational. So as a poet, how much does it hurt when they make up a rhyme that doesn't exist? I don't mind. You know what? That's that's really that's one of the things that I actually really love about you can make up rhymes and don't exist. So like, fine, go ahead. I, and also because I, I'm not good at rhyme, so I can totally understand the making up of a rhyme that doesn't exist because I don't even write in rhyme. So I'm like, yeah, whatever. Go to town. Have fun. Like, whatever you want. It's good. Yeah, I guess I guess there's just no way to write a musical without rhyming lyrics. Maybe there is, but it hasn't been invented yet. You're you're probably exactly right. No, mm. yeah, I don't know. I, I... no, it, it was invented, but then the apocalypse handed, uh, happened, and we lost that lost art, and we never found it again. So we're trying to rebuild it from scratch. That's what's happening. God. Damn it! The <laughs> Library of Alexandria lies yeah. shut. <laughs> oh God! I feel like that's where we are right now. We're we're like right at the beginning of it. I feel like we're like in another. Series. I don't think we're at the beginning of it. I think we're like somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. I think thing happened in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, did we turn into a George Carlin stand-up all of a sudden? Layla, turn it back. Turn it back. Okay, so let's go back to the songs because, like. Anybody who, like, I remember the confusion of when I saw the, like, when they were going on tour before Alleluia, and they were talking about their songwriting process, and it was like, yeah, so we had, like, these interesting ideas about the translators, and now instead we did a commercial for dictaphones. And you're like, what the hell is this? And then you realize, and yeah, once they mention the, like, the anti-musicals, everything is about work, so yeah, you know, you know, um, only by design is just the designing job here are all the things that you got to do. Then you have hitting on all sevens, which is a description of the caste system of heaven, which is, is actually a really important song when you think about it, because they keep trying to like, they let you know, either through like the elevator announcer or uh, Hasselhoff's little introduction, very quick introduction of the caste system. And you're like, you hear all these different terminologies, but it's like all put into song form. Like, you know, this is heaven right here. I, I kind of love how, like, everybody knows it's fucked up, too. Like, that that is something that, like, I find really interesting, is that... Yeah, all the sevens look terrified. Oh that scene is so amazing. Can we talk about, like, that little tiny scene and, like, how totally blown away and, like, creeped out I am with those poor girls? And, like, how the, the face acting on all of the applicants who are just looking like, I don't want to be here. Like, like this, this is really... I, we don't know what's going on, but, like, what... This is not where I want to be. Just, just like it's a little tiny scene. It's a blip in um in 
in only by design where it's like the the face acting is or although Cora's face acting in all sevens is is bananas i was thinking for hitting on all sevens i remember when they were saying in the commentary how like you know everyone is supposed to look serious but then people love tech nine's performance so much they couldn't help but smile i remember watching it thinking that those smiles were them sipping the Kool-Aid, where it's like sometimes they're afraid, but they're also starting to accept this is their role. This is where they're supposed to be. Oh, Cora's whole moment where she, you, you realize that she's sipping the Kool-Aid and she's doing this, like she made her choice. Yeah, you definitely watch Cora go on that whole journey throughout that whole song. It's like you watch her kind of like singing and horrified and like, like, doesn't really want to do what she has to do but this is what she has to do to survive and then you watch her like switch to like this is where i want to be like not just in this system but like it in this room with this guy like i want to be this person's second in command and i'll sell out anybody i my other love in order to do it like her whole journey with like no dialogue in that song is just like it's so much it's so good it, it's better to be under tech nine than the watchword after what she had to endure with him <laughs> Yeah. Another performance that I fucking love. Oh my god, Barry's crushing it. Barry Boswick is just absolutely crushing it. Actually, for me, my favorite part of that scene between the Watchword and Cora is actually the the song that plays in the background, Enemy. It's I listen to the instrumentals more than I probably should, but I love that song. And and it's so cool. I actually got to look into like the description of it. And you know, you have a mixture of like you know, Prick Goes the Scorpion's Tale, and a very, very dark version of the song Alleluia is playing in the background. And the reason it's called Enemy, and it fits so well for this scene, is that everyone in heaven is an enemy to themselves or others. And Cora, really, that is exactly what happens to her. She has to betray everything in order to survive. Yeah, and the idea that, that God just, just, um, just flippantly says, I need you to seduce her. I need you to teach her a lesson. And that that comes direct from the top. But when Cora truly loves June, that's not allowed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they set June up to fail almost immediately. And, and like, for no reason. Just, just because, like, God wants to see. It's because she was curious and she had questions. You're not allowed to question the author. Yeah, she's she's a troublemaker. I also I know we joke about how like all of this is a cult, and while I don't think cults are funny, it's 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 so perfect that heaven is so cult like with all of this. It's like you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't just go go forth and be blind with all of your actions, and and you'll be rewarded. Like, don't worry about it. And you're not really sure when. It was it was creepy watching it. It's this is the first time I've watched it uh maybe since the election and it was creepy. It was like, wow, this has taken on a lot of of stuff that it didn't mean to and didn't need to. There's actually a scene I never noticed where um during Bells of the Black Sunday, uh one of the the writhing women in the audience who's like so overtaken with God clasps the uh, architect's hand and then he uses hand sanitizer. He's like he like gets grossed out that she touched him. And and the Hoff the Hoff puts on this big glob of hand sanitizer. I'm like, really? I did. You know what? I it's a lot. I can't. Yeah, Heaven's literally a cult of personality, and like Paul Savino is, uh, he's, he's the head. He's the figurehead. So another thing that kind of comes to mind, a really funny thing. I, I well, not funny. I just 
it's something a big deal for me that's like the small details that I love um and it goes back to like that whole cast system that they have is June's ambition and her obsession with the armbands that dictate what cast you're in because there are so many little moments where like you know she notices someone is looking that she's just an applicant at this fancy club and she looks at it ashamed or you know she goes to the agent like oh god must love you and she's stroking his armband his number one she loves it so much and it's why at the very end when you get to after the fall that it became it's such a big important symbolism of you know basically god's control over you and eventually they just cast it aside i i have a whole like i want to do a whole fan fiction about this of just lucifer eventually realizing yeah fuck these armbands screw god why the hell am i still wearing this after who knows how many millennia i especially love that how how much she like almost struggles pulling hers off you can see it it hurts her to pull that thing off at the end of that song to eventually get the last of her ambitions and speaking, of, you mentioned uh, Prick a little while ago. I, the other day in the, in the rewatch, the first time I noticed that right before Hoof and Laugh, when the agent gets down to hell, that uh, Prick goes a scorpion tail is playing in the background when he approaches her. I'm like, oh my God, like all that little things that you, you don't even pick up on, you know, the first time or first hundred times, rather. Yeah, that's also one of my like top three of those instrumental tracks. It's so good. And yeah, there's so many little hints, even. Um, like, you know, anytime you see Mary Wood, you know, like you hear like reckless creatures and like cute little musical interpretations of songs from the first film, like either sped up or slowed down. And it's just marvelous. SARS is just being a genius. SARS just doing what he does. Oh, so good. And he's actually in the movie this time. Like you blink and you miss him, but he is actually there. He shows up a few times. Yeah, there's like three or four, right? Yeah, something like that. So for so on the audio commentary that um, that I there, so there's one audio commentary on the DVD with uh, Darren, Terrence, and Sar, and then there's another audio commentary with um, Mark Center, who plays the Scorpion, Emily Autumn, and uh, Landon or Leiden, Libby. I don't know. Lyndon. Lyndon. Lyndon, like the president. Lyndon, like the president. Okay, so Lyndon, Lyndon, who plays Cora, and they—that's a great commentary. They're they're uh, they're casting it live from Darren's house, and at one point, Darren's baby walks in, and the commentary just stops for like you know a couple good minutes so that they can just talk about how cute the baby is. It's so cute. It's great. You should listen to it. But um, in yeah, Mark loves the baby. Emily's like, please get that thing. Out. I love it. God bless. God bless Emily. I, holding it down for all the all the women who don't like children just holding it down for all of us god bless her yeah but, um fairy godmother emily yeah. hey kiddo god, god love her but she so one of the things i love um so so libby plays the harpist in the movie you guys so in all the it scenes in like that atrium which is like the big hallway of heaven you can see Libby uh, with her big harp at the at the bottom of the hallway, and then um, there was a whole conversation about you, Libby, on the audio commentary. God, I woke up one morning to like Alex was trying to cut the parts of the commentary together that mentioned me, so that he could like send them. I swear to God, it, when he hands DVDs of this movie to people, he writes timestamps on the paper casings in pencil like to watch for oh, me no. and i'm like that's super cute it's but, so cute oh it's just why doesn't he like 
get in a movie. But like the intro, the introvert in me just kind of like curled up a little bit. Like that's adorable, but also like, oh wow, I don't. If if my significant other did stuff like that about me, I think I would be a little uncomfortable with it. Like that would not be my jam. It's. I don't. I can't expect everyone to react the way he does. So the timestamps are really just for him. <laughs> <laughs> so. There was an excellent little conversation about you because Emily had said she did not know that anyone else was going to be in those shots. Um, in the scene where, where June and Cora are arguing about what June is doing with the agent, um, you can actually see Libby sleeping on her harp for that entire scene. She's just like hanging out in, in the hallway. And, and Emily was like, yeah, I had to like reevaluate my whole like emotional core for that scene because I thought we were going to be alone. And then there was like another person. She was right. They wrote it alone. And the only reason I was there was because of a script supervisor. Her name's Sarah Schultz. She's amazing. Please hire her on any film projects, anyone listening. Um, she's, she's absolutely wonderful. Uh, script supervisors, they manage continuity and they manage scheduling and they, uh, they save the production a ton of money just by uh, um, increasing the efficiency of what they get done in a day. And so when Darren was setting up the lights and uh, he like did a, a picture preview and he was like, all right, last looks before we bring, um, before we bring Emily and, and Barry on, uh, what do you think of this stained glass window? Should I throw something over it? And then I think Sarah spoke up and said, well, you'll have to relight it if you do that. But I understand you want like a contrast between daytime and nighttime in heaven. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. And so Sarah, I have her to thank. She said, hey, why don't you get the harpist talent back? Um, she'll just sit in the chair and sleep if you want. And he was like, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> so uh, I got a call at 6.30 in the morning. And luckily, I recognized Laura Balsman's voice because she's never called me ever, except that one time. <laughs> and uh, she goes, hey, uh, is this Libby Mueller? I was like, Laura? And she goes, yeah. Hey, how fast can you get to DC stages? And I was like, oh, it's Los Angeles at 6.30. I'll be there as soon as I can. And I had already thrown away the white stockings that I had uh, the, the day before when, they, when we shot um, Everybody's Doing the Arc. So I was stopping by Target in like downtown Burbank. <laughs> and I ran to the section where uh, they had thigh-high stockings and they didn't have white thigh-high stockings. So I got full tights and I put these full white tights on and I figured like, all right, my leg is just, you know, no one's going to see this sexy little thigh band on my thigh highs. And that's the only difference between yesterday's shot and today's shot. So it should be fine. And I get there and I get into makeup. They, they checked the makeup. I, I tried to do as much makeup as I could in the car because I, I knew that I wasn't going to get a lot of trailer time once I got there. And once I was there, uh, I took my place and Darren was like, you're just going to sleep. And um, I might add like a like, like a string of Z's or something in post-production. And I was like, okay, can you give me a boon? Can I snore? And he goes, no. <laughs> they did love all that, that computer animation in the second one though. They really, they, there was a lot of like, we have money uh, visual effects. A lot of like the, the bell ringing and it says ring. There's a lot of like, they were very excited about their visual effects in that one. Shawnee and Spooky, like they must, now I know that Terrence did not like the idea that I was in the elevator scene. 
uh, he was really against it. So when he found out that Sarah and Darren had made this decision without him, he was like, oh God, you're going to do a stupid thing like snoring or something. And that's what he did. He put it in in post-production. <laughs> and so that's why on the commentary when Darren is like, yeah, she's Terrence's favorite character. He's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> oh yeah. And they're obsessed with their ridiculous sound effects. Oh my God. I knew that would be a great story. I knew. I was very excited about it. The best stories are actually, uh, if you guys know Shem Andre Byron, he's a music producer and filmmaker, and he owns the, the, um, the Secret Lair Action Figure Museum. In he got Van called Nuys. out in the audio commentary, too. Mark Center loved him and, and shouted oh, him he's out. amazing. Oh, God. He, he really is great, and he can get along with even Mark Center. Like, he is a truly zen human being. He's wonderful. Uh, he's, he's Sar's best friend. They're, they're bros. They've known each other for, like, 20 years, almost almost since like they knew each other before they met Terrence. So they were like music buddies. And I think, I think they've known each other since before Sar couldn't get into music school. Like, so we're talking like teenage years, maybe. Um, I don't know the exact numbers on that, but they've known each other a really, really long time. So Shem is involved in every single, like every gopher project that they can't find someone to do, Shem has to do it. <laughs> and he was in the scene, uh, even showing up at the edge yep. of the screen he is in the edge of that frame in the opening scene and i don't know if this was mentioned in the commentary but you lauren's uh latexes for that scene went up over her whole body like a suit like like the um like the dead suit on the woman from the shining in the bathtub mrs mccready um so she had like a big old like she could walk around set and like in her robe or not and she was fine. She was in makeup the entire time and she didn't have to like change anything when they yelled cut and she had to take breaks. So her body makeup was done for the day, but Shem's was only like a torso piece that he put over his head like a, I don't know, like half, like the upper half of a diving suit. And then he was walking around set with his junk hanging out because they didn't put any body makeup on the bottom. <laughs> and then you don't even get to see him. No, I mean, he showed up on set and everyone, everyone was okay with his junk hanging out while he was literally standing on set. But when they yelled cut and he went to the craft service table, like, Shawnee went up to him and was like, dude, your dick is in the M&M's. <laughs> and he's like, what? They didn't give me any body makeup. He's like, well, put on some shorts. He goes, I'm not going to put shorts over this bio glue. What, do I, what if I mess it up? We only get one shot at this. Movie magic. It really it is. The glamour. <laughs> yeah. So when he sat down and took his place for the shot, they were like, "Listen, we um, we made a mistake by not putting any body makeup on your lower half. So you're gonna have to like hold this cube between your knees, and it's gonna obscure your junk for the shot." So that's what he did. That is and dedication, that's what folks. That is that is professionalism. Yeah, and you know, Shem has like so many photos of himself around set, and he's the. He's the only guy who's not a, who a professional swing dancer in the Down at the Midnight Rectory dance. And somehow he, he like he's selling the character so hard when he throws his head back in that shot and you see like his uh, Hunger Games hair. Oh, God, it, it's just glorious. He's such a performer and such a chame chameleon. That whole sequence is gorgeous. Oh, that whole sequence is gorgeous. Like, oh, my, some of Darren's best camera work, in my opinion. That long shot when they come in. Fucking oh, beautiful. Oh, it was oh, so good. Such, that's, that's just some beautiful cinnamon. I have a question for you, Libby. Now that, because, like, you know all these intricacies that happened in the film. 
So they talk about how they had to cut like seven songs from this movie. Do you have any idea what they are? Because I would love to find out. Yeah, Danny Warsnaps was going to play a lion tamer instead of a, uh, instead of a blacksmith. And he was uh, in this song, like I, I don't, Mike Murga was telling me about it. And this man, like if you ever hang out with Mike Murga, he has psychological diarrhea. Like everything he knows about everything in the industry he has ever had experience with, he'll tell you about it. Because I don't know if it's an insecurity thing where he thinks like people don't take him seriously as an artist, but that's not true. He just like, he'll tell you about friggin' um, when his coworkers put him in a briefcase and sent him to Will Ferrell's office in North Hollywood and he jumped out of the briefcase to scare him. And there's like a, another story he tells about uh, working with the Butcher Babies. And then uh, he was telling me about how he went to a production rehearsal for this number that I think Danny Warsnops or maybe it was the Tamer. Um, but Danny Warsnops was meant to be uh, like a, I guess a bigger name on the Lion Tamer concept because they had a whole rings, wow. they, had a, <laughs> they had a ring number prepared where um, June would be made to perform like a lion and like jump through hoops of fire. And they were gonna, it was, it was a scary number where they were gonna like abuse and torture June. And it was replaced by After the Fall. But it's, uh, it was an early concept that they were thinking of incorporating instead of a couple of numbers that we see in the final product. That's the one I know about. I both love and hate that, though. Because After the Fall is such a visually like a beautiful song, and it also does so much for the movie itself. But after watching Devil's Carnival and watch what they put the souls through and torturing them i kind of i'm kind of split on this idea of not getting to see that be done to somebody else because we've already seen it but at the same time if it meant that we didn't get after the fall like i don't want it any other way but wouldn't the concept be that like heaven's already done it though like like i i feel like maybe having hell tortured june would have been redundant because like heaven's already done that concept and that and that is the torture not so much anything that they can do to her i i yeah i don't know there was also so many scheduling concerns and i you really have to thank laura bassman for getting this film like principal photography done on time <laughs> because while uh well i mentioned sarah 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 schultz's contributions but laura bassman was instrumental in deciding what they had time for what their stunt team could handle what uh what emily could handle because she was under a lot of stress and she's not an actress so she was dealing with a whole bunch of situations for the very first time in her whole career and when darren would be like no she can do anything she's she's my muse she can do 18 hours today laura would be like no we're cutting that we're we're gonna film some stuff that doesn't have june in it today period and and for that reason a lot of stuff got done that otherwise would not have so while a lot of cuts were um inspired by her criticism of how the um, of, of how the production schedule was going it really uh, we ended up with a really nice product that could have been uh that, that like could have been a huge disappointment depending on how stressed out everyone allowed themselves to get that is something they talk about on the audio commentary as well how everybody was so happy to be there because I think um, 
uh, Lyndon specifically says this. She's like, you know, you don't, as an actress, you don't love to come to work on every job that you do. And this one, everybody was really, really happy and excited to be there. And so even when there were things that were stressful, like the uh, the applicant dresses were made of polyester and really sweaty and they, they, they stank horribly. So all the applicants, you know, had to like sit around and eat in dresses that smelled everybody was still really delighted to to be on set so maybe that is down to to laura bowsman like this could have been a total like hair and teeth falling out shoot in how many days did this go over we talked about the first one being in seven days 14 days 14 okay so that's awesome we gotta we gotta send laura some flowers or something i don't know but like i love this movie so much heck yes i love this movie so much Can I do my disability rant my the end of my my uh Darren, Darren Oh my god, yes, of course. Darren and yes. yes. disability allies uh thing that I was I, I can't find a good segue to do this, but we are talking about June and June's character arc, so like this is this is my point. So like this is the best as I can do as far as a segue. So um and also the the fact that like yes, it is June's movie, but it could have been a lot more June's in terms of like what Darren wanted to shoot and what they had time for and stuff I'm really I'm interested in that given that I do actually believe June to be the protagonist of this movie and it is really her story so what's interesting I mean for those of you who are you know were with us two weeks ago um I talked a little bit about how Shiloh and and Mag and a lot of the other characters in Repo the Genetic Opera foreground the disabled woman's body so that was a big theme that I found in Repo that I was really excited about that that it was even more excited about when I realized the creators of the film had no idea that they had done it. And I brought it up to them and they were like really excited by the prospect. So Alleluia is actually another story of, of the disabling of a woman um, and having, and this is a, a really like common trope. This is a very Victorian trope, the actual physical disabling of a character because they have done something wrong and like signify the, either their evilness or like their purity figure. Like, um, Tiny Tim versus like all of uh, Dickens's disabled villains. It's a very Victorian sort of situation. So like, um, so June is punished for her ambition and for her arrogance, and she falls. And the very literal consequence of her falling is her physical um, disabling on a number of fronts. She breaks the leg, so she has the limp. She um, she goes blind in one eye, which is what that contact is for. And that was originally that was a lot of work on the part of Emily Autumn. All of the the kind of jerky movements of the doll. Um, she didn't really have a character in the in the first film. They kind of just dressed her up and put her out on stage. And again, not an actress. And so she was kind of doing a lot of her own work with regards to that sort of thing. So she came up with the movements for the doll and those very sort of jerky, brittle, um, puppet-like movements because she looked at the face makeup and she thought, well, if this person's face is that mashed in, her neck and her spine must be ruined. Um, so that was originally like the way she got to that place. She originally also said the contact lens hurt her a lot. So she kind of brought that into the character and it was like, okay, this causes this character pain because it's causing me pain. So they, um, they kind of like built that up from her original notes on the character in the first film. And so her fall is literally a physical disabling. And so after the fall is literally an embrace of the, of the physically disabled body. And you can see it all through hell. You see it up. With the twin is wearing that bandage over his eyes and their interaction right before, uh, and I just blanked on the title of the song, shit, um, the song between the twin and, um, the twin and June. I'm sorry, what's it called, you guys? 
you fair game fair game fair game I'm, i totally just blanked on the title so there the opening of their of that reinteraction um her asking him what happened to your face um what you know and the interesting thing about this is like it's not just hell it would be easy to have all of the disabled bodies be in hell that would be a really easy kind of you know schlocky sort of outsider status kind of metaphor to make but also on the opposite side of it we have god the toy maker who is disabling all these bodies out of his sort of need for perfection and his need to create something and his um lack of concentration as the devil is is you know making him annoyed um Libby, you talked about your friend who played that character who's just in, who's like in that body makeup, which I love terribly. Um, you know, there's a lot of there. Oh, I don't actually know you, Lauren Vex, but that is her name. That's She's her a name. Figure model and an artist. So, yeah. you know, so that's the image that we're, it's that um, female figure who's hanging from like a meat hook in God's. Um, you know, office, and he's trying to work on her, and she's all scarred, and she can't speak, and is obviously in very, very, you know, horrible pain. So it would be really easy to have, you know, um, June is 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 sort of a disabled fallen angel, and she finds her place in health through her disablement and through her empowerment in that um, that act of bodily cruelty. But what makes it really, really interesting is it's not just that disabled people are in hell, which would be a really kind of like these are the outsiders. This is freak show it would be really easy to do that but instead they also put them in heaven there are people with eye patches or who are kind of in the background of heaven the um the the band leader has an has an old-fashioned earpiece which signifies maybe deafness in which was an originally like a an early accessibility tool for the deaf like it's it's all over the um that's all over the aesthetic of this film not just in hell it's actually all over both sides of it but mostly I, I just love talking about June because I just love the idea that she um, again like Shiloh and Mag empowerment um, through the disabling of her female body and then when you add uh, June's queerness onto that like my, my disabled queer heart is just overflowing with, with joy about what they chose to do for the plot of this film it's, it's great I just well, you really, uh, you, you taught me something just now because I had not, um, I had not given them any credit for being allies to the disabled <laughs> in any way. Oh, they don't know they did it. I, I brought this up to Terrence and I was like, yeah, I'm writing a paper. He was like, I didn't, you're making me sound much smaller than I really am. I'm like, that makes it even better. You aren't even like, you know, totally like some really, really good A plus representation from, from dudes who just have no idea what they're doing. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's that's awesome. I had well, what you taught me just now was that uh, I would have I would have immediately rebutted you had I not listened to your entire soapbox rant. So I would have like I would have cut you off to say no. These are victims of abuse. These were these people were disabled because they've done something wrong. Like uh, that's just that that's a terrible concept to to always stick with in like across many works of fiction. But but no, you're absolutely right. There are natural disabilities that cannot be construed as the consequence of a character's actions and i had not even yeah there, that by thinking i'm, about I'm writing a paper about, about this, this that i'll eventually get that i'll eventually get done i just i need to read a lot more about disability and gothic and yeah it, it's it's happening i just i i mostly love that it was completely unintentional i mostly love that it was just some, it, it's it's something that actually you can see in both Repo and Alleluia, and it was it's just obviously something that that um, Terrence was not thinking about consciously, which I think is is really, really great.
some A plus. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think that uh, that artistically, Terrence uses disabilities as a, a, a um, an eccentricity that he finds that 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 he is drawn to. It's like a, a like a fetish, but um, that's that's not exactly the the representation that disabled people no, deserve that's really. just something that able-bodied people think of as like oh wouldn't it be so i envy that suffering it's just so cool to have a cane you know it's it, it's terrible and we able-bodied people like always try to staunch down that the, when we start thinking thoughts like that like oh how gorgeous is that eye patch like we start like slapping ourselves like what the hell right <laughs> it's just cool it's also it's also it, it's got to do with their kind of like gothic sensibility of like you know things like scars and things like you know the eye patch and and things like mag's weird eyes and everything it's all very you know it's all very it's a it's a fashion item it's a state it's a statement of status it's, it's a statement it's a statement i mean like, like even okay so there was originally a scene in Repo where the grave robber helps Amber sew her face back on. And now in Alleluia, there's a scene where Lucifer is is helping with uh, June's, you know, facial ruin. And I'm kind of like, Terrence, something you need to devote some time to with your therapist. Like, maybe, like, like think it out a little. What like, did your me, mother do to you? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Let's not go there. It's the yeah. podcast for this. But, um. But I have like, enough of a hard time with that crap. Let's not do that. That's yeah. like, that's a whole other side podcast that doesn't exist yet. We could all get into it. Then it'll all, it'll become a therapy session for all of us. It's just, it, we don't need to. But, um, but yeah, like it would be like, at first I was like looking into it and I was like, it could be really easy to just do this wrong. But what they do that I find interesting and correct is like, it is actually the disabling that brings empowerment. Like I said this on, on the show too. It's like Mag is actually robbed of her power by being given her sight and not actually having it taken away. Like, like you know, they they just kind of do it in a in a flip, you know, in a, in an interesting sort of way. So I, I, you know, it happens in all three films, and I just love it terribly so much. So that's it. I'm... No, that's an excellent, excellent point. I'm really glad you talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, nobody wants to go after that, Liv. No. Oh, <sighs> thank you, thank you guys for letting me do that for. Your your listeners are like, get this bitch to shut up. Oh my god. Like, no, no, never. Well, first of all, anybody that says that, I'll kill them myself. But it's it's one of those things where I I, I feel like the more you bring up to them how beneficial it is and what it does for everyone involved, whether they realize that they did it or not, I feel like eventually it'll it'll or at least one would hope it would bring forth the conscious effort to not do it by accident and and create a story around a very significant part of the community that supports them that's true that's true like there have been like usually novelists novelists get visited by fans who are like oh i never thought how a character being followed by the ghost of their dead fetus was just a a metaphor for like how they feel about their mother and you know the authors are like well i i wasn't thinking about that at all i just wanted to write something scary but now you've given me some real food for thought and it um it, i mean i think stephen king has really uh sort of um he's really climbed the maslow's pyramid of what it means to be an artist through his fans communicating what his work means to them and 
I think that we're doing that with Terrence and Sar and Darren and, uh, and, and even, even if it's not getting through, we have found a community of our own where we get to discuss this with each other. And I can tell that they are super thrilled about that. I mean, hello, look, look what this did. I mean, not, not that, not that I don't think Chris and I would never have covered these movies because it was going to be an inevitability because I'm such a huge fan of them, but I don't, without having had all of you guys in my life, you wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having the kind of discussions we would be having for this. So, yeah. Yeah, we found a family and that's really, that's the best part of it. No, it's true. And I've met so many, like, I'm people who know me know that I, I talk a lot of shit about uh, cis men in the industry. And I hate working on, like, cis male-dominated projects, which is, like, everything. And uh, so I, I end up, like, just ranting about my job all the time. And I never do that about these projects because everything I ever did for Darren Bowsman, yeah, he's a cis man, but he introduced me to Kimmy Yan. She's the best producer I've ever met. And, you know, he, he's the reason Laura is with us for all these projects. And she started the Gratitude Collaborative. And um, I'm pretty sure his kiddos are going to be amazing artists. And uh, so I, I really, like, moral of this story is I'm so, so glad I did this cis male-dominated project, Fight Like a Girl, ironic, because it introduced me to uh, all the women I truly admire in, in the Southern California film industry now. I envy you a little bit in that respect. I worked on, I've only worked on two movies in my life, not in an acting capacity whatsoever, but I don't think that I felt even half of what you were talking about because I don't think it was there. And I, um, I think that representation and, and, and community and, and feeling well, welcome is sort of everything in that industry. And it's awesome that they do it again, however, intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, you're you're probably right. That sense of uh, the sense of community probably wasn't there because it is not your fault. There is hardly um, there is hardly a thing that makes money in the film industry anymore that isn't dry, contrived, bottled up and labeled, very corporate, very like no one no one likes doing the stuff that that, that is a hard money maker. And everyone loves doing the, the the indie passion projects. Everyone wanted to be there, and so yeah, I'm I'm certain that uh, that if you've worked on two film projects as like part of the tech personnel, which by the way is so much easier to find work. I I envy your skills in in uh, cinema tech because holy crap, I've never been formally educated in film. Like I studied theater in school, so everything I'm doing in every single film job is faking it till i make it <laughs> yeah i'm still doing yeah. that and i went to school for film don't it's fine we all do it <laughs> yeah but you you Doesn't really matter. like the saving grace is that when you go to a project where nobody wants to be there and you see stuff happening like um like female personnel holding the set together while the male personnel have panic attacks and tantrums and uh they they lose their focus uh you see you see them like you can see a lot of credit being reaped by men in the industry that 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 women are truly responsible for. But I am happy to say that nothing like that can be attributed to the creative process on Alleluia because it was even it, it, even some of the women who worked on it said that it was an improvement upon Devil's Carnival episode one. Like they felt they were treated better and given uh, better pay, more, like more responsibility. They had uh, 
they had like more networking support on Alleluia than they did in TDC. And uh, I, the reason why I'm like coquettishly like telling a telling a specific story that's that's um, that's vaguely broad is because of the specific thing that Kimmy Yan told me, where she's like, I didn't get a producer credit on TDC one, but goddamn if I didn't do a producer's job. And then on Alleluia, she got a co-producer credit right next to Laura. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so. I wanna I wanna branch off from, since we're already branched off of that. Um, Chris, I hate to leave you out of this one too, but we all but we all, all sort of had ex- different experiences with this. When Alleluia decided to do their their road tour, uh, I can safely say that most, if not all of us, again, sorry, Chris, uh, were at one of those tour stops. Yes. Yes. I met Carrie and C at my road stop. That's uh, they they were on the train on the way. I actually I did. Did you guys see me at the show? I think you did, but like I didn't see you. You, you Carrie, you did. I remember seeing you. I'm like this poor girl with the crutches, and there's an elevator, but she's such a badass taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Yeah, those were some pretty bitching. St- they're always really bitching stairs whenever we go to a, a Taryn show. But those were some pretty hardcore stairs at that show. But then I, I very distinctly remember, like, you guys got off the train in, in my suburb on Long Island and both had your shirts on. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, my God, do people live here? Like, do, are, are there, like, secret cool people that live in Nail? And you guys don't actually live but I was very excited about like oh my god maybe there's like a legion of goth people that just live in Farmingdale that I didn't know about I was like so excited that night it was so it would ha- it would be a while before I actually met C and Carrie and Liv because I also was at that tour stop and didn't meet you guys didn't see you guys I actually brought a friend of mine who had no idea what the fuck was going on, but enjoyed herself nonetheless. Um, she has since come with me to a Donner. She came with me to the Donner party tour stop. Again, had no idea what was going on. Was just happy to be there. Um, but I, I think that was that was probably my that was my first ever like introduction to all of this to be around people who had been obsessing over the same thing I had. And I didn't feel as weird as alone surrounded by a bunch of people who appreciated the same shit I did. And I was like, Oh damn. And it was the first time I felt like a real sense of community in a room full of strangers, which is very hard for me to do. And I think a lot of that has to do with the energy that Terrence and Darren and Sar bring to the things that they do. This was also our introduction to American Murder Song, which is like a whole other thing. But Sar yeah. coming out of his shell over the course of these tours has been yeah. a joy to behold. Oh, oh my, my god. god. Yes, absolutely. He was so shy at the at the Hollywood. He like did not know what the fuck to do and and like was hiding behind Darren and Terrence. And now it's just like you're yeah, you're in the you're in the group now, my friend. You're the you're, He is the group now. So He is the group now. <laughs> I don't think Sar was even Sorry, it wasn't even at the New York City Alleluia because it was just Darren, Terrence, uh, Emily, Mark, and Christina Cleveland. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And Emily stayed and signed for like literally every single one of the thousand people who were there. It was amazing. Like, oh. I had I had ran into my friend Andy there, and they had their copy of Aesop Fables, <gasps> and before the show, Emily was going to sign it. And they had to go inside. 
So after the show was over and she was congregating outside and all these girls were, were talking to Emily about how, you know, the suicide and everything that they could relate to her, um, they were pulling Emily away to go catch, I guess, the cab to the airport. And I'm screaming, Emily, Emily, my friend's book. And she goes, wait, I have to sign the book. And she actually came back and signed my friend Andy's Aww. book. <laughs> she is so generous. Mark's Mar- 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 like pulling her like, Mark's in, like, pulling her, like, we have to go. He's like, no, I promise. I have to. I have to. Oh, he did that at every stop, so though. Generous. Like, he was always tired and ready to go kick back at the hotel, and she always had one more fan. It was it was really beautiful, and I really admire her. She's a superhero for, uh, she, she just deals with the attention on top of attention, and I don't even want to know how much Xanax it took the day of the, like, the Beverly Hills farewell, hallelujah stop. Because holy cripes, uh, Mark started saying these like I, he was trying to like keep an air of humor, but he ended up saying something that really ticked off my husband, Mamber Sweet. So in a in a giant like in these thigh high, like sugar baby boots and a bustier and the, and the amber wig, uh, my husband actually picked up Mark Center by his lapels, and then. <laughs> lowered him down onto the floor because what Mark said was, um, was we got to go. And, and Emily said one more minute. And he said, I have a penis. I have spoken. And, (laughs) and he was trying to be cute. Like he, he was smiling as he said it and he, he was trying to be cute. And Alex just one hand picked this boy up. (laughs) Oh, Scorps bad. You need to go back to your cage. That was not cute. He looked scared for a minute, and then Alex put him down and said, this is not your show, and that is not your house. You live there. Oh, my. (laughs) Damn. And I was like, oh, I love you, honey. turned on. Okay, well, show's over, guys. We're done. Yeah. On that note, yeah, yeah. Is there any follow-up to that? We did decide that, like, none of us could pick our favorite song, right? Like, we were talking off mic about how we all have, like, favorite songs in this movie. You and I, you and I differed on one song, but I can't pick a favorite. I have four that I love, and I'm sticking to it. I, I would have to go with, I would have to go with After the Fall. It's just such a hauntingly beautiful song. I could just listen to that, that song and repeat for hours on it. I think mine is Little Dictation Machines. Uh, yeah, I think After the Fall is for mine, and then... If I can include instrumentals, because I love the instrumentals, like a tie between Enemy and Woe. What was that song when she, like, when June falls? I love that goddamn song. Whoa! Oh my god, Woe is so good. Oh, I love Woe. I think mine's Down in the Midnight Rectory, hitting on all seven after the fall and Hoof and Lap. Because yeah, I don't care that Hoof and Lap, like, I think someone was saying how most of it isn't even real German. I don't care. No, R- Rika, one of our one of our friends from Germany is like, I love the song, but the Germans wrong, and like it's like it's terrible, like it, it puts me out of it. Yeah, no, it's but it's such a great song. Yeah, she she can't speak German or or sing it, but she had to sing it on a metronome just to make all the syllables fit, and to to do that, she had to butcher the shit out of it. <laughs> uh, hands down, my favorite is Shovel and Bone. Chris, this is my shocked face that you like a song where. Lucifer is the lead and he's, you know, being a showman and, and driving a train back to heaven. They're, they're on a train and they're, and, and I, I, uh, I mean, obviously Terrence's voice is, uh, uh, like just 
Mm, so good. Um, can take a straight man's pants off. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I have zero qualms about it. It's it's, it's, it's so good. And by what really struck me was like it was kind of like a like like a is it, like my my brain was removed from my body because like I was so immersed and I, I like I could feel my soul like going into the movie and like riding along with the train, especially in that one part where uh, Marywood and Lucifer they're like singing over each other she's just chanting in the in the, this fever speaking with with tongues hallelujah chant while while terrence is just still vibing and, and vamping in the background it's like oh this is so good so i was way i was like as soon as that song kicked in especially with that final moment the song i was like oh oh this this movie's gonna be great i know it i know it. it's gonna be and yeah so i mean i i think um I, I was rewatching this movie. Uh, and it's still, still. I mean, now it's kind of like imprinting. Like, even after all, all these songs are great, but still, like Shuffle the Bone when I first heard it, and now it's just firing all those synapses in my brain and launching all those endorphins. Like, oh, so that's. I got a really visceral reaction to Shuffle the Bone. So, still, you're making me want to watch it again, Chris. Yes. I mean, watch <laughs> so party. Good. I'm down. Hell yeah! Watch party. I think one of my favorite pieces of trivia is uh, watching on the commentary track. They said that originally uh, Sean Patrick Flannery as John was supposed to have the role that Mary Wood ended up having in the movie. And I think Terrence said like it would give a whole new meaning to that like whole scene where he's like kissing her neck and being all like really hot up on Mary Wood, which even gets even more me- meaning at the end when it turns out that it's never actually Mary Wood the entire movie. It's the twin the entire time. So he's like kissing the twin's neck and... You bring up a great point. Whatever happened to John? Or is that something that is going to be addressed in whatever falls? If there's ever going to be like a Devil's Carnival Part 3 or? Well, there will sooner be a Repo 2 than a Devil's Carnival 3, sadly. Well, or yay? I mean, I'm fine with both, but like. uh... (laughs) It's a pipe dream either way, but it's possible. What they ended up doing with John I don't know if anyone heard Darren tell the story. Is that uh, they, of course, they couldn't get Sean Patrick Flannery. Um, his his schedule would not allow the the timing that they had, and they had a short notice principal photography start date, so they couldn't get him back. And then they they just kind of adapted his plot line into God's uh, like God sentinel event of what made him suspicious that the devil was breaking the rules. Um. So he was the catalyst for God coming up with a revenge plan. Uh, and then they just sort of forgot about John as a character and showed us the, like, the forensic file that has his photo in it that Marywood kind of snoops at. Like, I remember, I think the publicist was like, yeah, that man John was just the first. And that was, like, your only real mention of him. <laughs> they say, do you, do you recognize this man or something? And, uh, and Marywood was looking at the the file folder on the desk real quickly and it had pictures of Tamara and John and uh, her and her fancy jewels. Here's a question. How did they get those pictures in heaven? The watchword. Yeah, they must have surveillance on, on hell. They must be sending Uncle Barry down to snap a few shots every once in a while. He looks like he belongs in hell anyway, right? I mean, like, his aesthetic is totally, like, yeah. Oh God, it's so good. He's a That's... pretty smooth double agent, if necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's a movie I'd watch. The watchword, that's just sneaking into I'd hell watch. to do surveillance. Just double agent, uh, just double agenting it up. Yeah, that's a that's a sequel I would totally watch. Here's a quick question for everyone. Since I mentioned about you know obviously Marywood being the twin, the end of the movie, Songs of Old, is that the agent or is that the twin singing as the agent? It's totally the twin. Oh, that's totally the twin. It's the twin because the video starts as directed by God and then it changes to Lucifer. And it was the first time I noticed it really? last night. I never noticed that. Now, now I have to rewatch the movie. It's really, uh, they, they put, of course, they, that text watermark went over in post-production and it, really because they didn't want to sacrifice the song, just like in All My Dreams I Drown. They didn't want to sacrifice the song, so they made it a credit song. And they sort of made it a plot device by putting that little direction switch over. And so it's meant to be your, your, there's your Hamlet ambiguity for this particular Bowsman project. I'm glad they didn't cut it because I fucking love that. That's like my runner up of my, my four favorite songs when I was trying to like narrow it down to one. I was like, that's the, the honorable mention one that is like, I just love that song. Oh my God. It's really a gorgeous song, and I understand why they w wouldn't want to sacrifice it. They, they already made so many musical sacrifices with so many concepts that would have been great, and the fact that they kept that one, that was so cool. One more opinion from you, a similar theme. At the end of Hoof and Lap, when they get into like that reprise of Off to Hell We Go, the, one of the last lines when um, the agent is going on the always hallelujah, and they say, all good children fall. Is that symbolism of something that happens to the agent if we ever get an episode three? Yeah, I, I wonder what they're going to do with that because Adam's uh, Adam's up for coming back and doing further projects, but Cleopatra has to be on board with this. Like that's that's how they get the rights back. Okay, so they don't have the rights. We were talking about this last week about whether or not they ha they got they sold the rights um, for for Devil's Carnival stuff, and I wasn't sure. Cleopatra Records is totally in possession of all the cards there. I'm not sure the specifics. So now that we were discussing last we were discussing last week, somebody posted on. Instagram a few weeks ago that they were at a showing of Jesus Christ Superstar and Ted Neely claimed that they're getting ready to do episode three. And then the guy followed wow. up with me claiming that he also heard the same thing from Barry Botswick. And I'm like, I don't know, guys, unless I hear it from Terrence and Sarah, I don't think that's happening. Well, I'd be willing to bet that they, they, they might still be in talks with Cleopatra Records, so it's possible, but I don't know... Maybe someone who maybe the person who posted that on Instagram was confused about maybe the the Asylum musical, like confusing the project. Oh, I don't know. Maybe that would mean that Ted Neely was going to be in Asylum, and that would be so. Yeah, good. he's going to play oh. Sir Edward the Rat. Nice. Oh, 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 oh! I'm so excited. Oh my yeah. god. So sorry. Did everybody answer the the song question? Can I pick part of a song that's my favorite musical moment? <laughs> okay, because my favorite song is Down at the Midnight Rectory, but only the part that was cut into the trailer. Down, down, down at the Midnight Rectory? With the jiggles you saw? Yeah, the peacocks are strutting behind velvet uh -huh. ropes, sipping away on their heavenly dope, and then the rest of the song is just downhill from Ooh. that. Oh, <laughs> I, I like it, though. I remember talking to... To Sar about it, being like, so was this meant to be one giant blowjob reference? And he was like, nah, this is just, well, it's a hokum style song. Like, it's meant to just be one of those, like, dirty, uh, what, double entendre kind of, th I, it's a delight. Bullshit, so it was intentional. It's dirty, jazzy ragtime. That's all it is. It's all in good fun.
<laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. It's the song that I will never get to hear Adam Pascal perform, no matter how many concerts I go to. It's just never going to happen. Like, it's never going to be in there amongst all the Rent songs. It's just never going to be there. <laughs> and he was special. He was the only cast member in Hallelujah who was allowed to say Hallelujah because the rest of it, like, I swear to God, Shawnee and Darren, like, he and his AD were like Joan Crawford with the wire hangers if people said hallelujah. People were saying hallelujah and fucking up so many shots and fucking up so many takes. And he was just like, no, hallelujah, hallelujah. Say it in your sleep. I don't care how many times. You are not going to say hallelujah on this set again, David Hasselhoff. Who else didn't do the song question? Was it, did anyone, did everyone else get to it? I think we all did. We all did, yeah. So how about either, I don't know how to word this, should it be, be like favorite character or best performance? Oh, those are different questions. Those are different different answers for me. We can answer both at the same time, maybe. Layla, it was your question. You go first. I mean, you know, I mean, I already said it earlier, but Ticket Keeper definitely for me was my favorite character. And for best performance, it is kind of a tie between him and Cora because they really like, you know, the guy, like everybody in the commentary mentions it, like they're, they are the anchors of reality. Like they're the only people who are kind of looking like, okay, I'm going to just be a normal human. And like the rest of you larger than life, carny angel delights. <laughs> so I, I just, I really like, I used to not care for Cora, but then watching it again, and seeing how she's trying to be very prim and proper, despite the the like the kind of creepy Italian nightmare happening around her, I gotta give her props for that. That performance was really good. So something I find interesting, especially with Cora, you know, when you have the early like the flashback scenes and the the ladies of virtue and Geraldine, they're all very stylish and very yeah that time period. And even Cora is like Layla just said very proper in her behavior but then when it jumps to the later point and she's the new head like lead lady of virtue like she's very like leather and very like sexy dressed and everything it's like an interesting twist in how the ladies of virtue have changed over the years from that flashback area to the current time period yeah the costume designer uh mildred von hildebrand she's um she's a genius and she owns mother of london designs so if you ever want a pattern made or a costume, uh, con- contact Mildred von Hildebrand of Mother of London. But she's a, she said that she loved making the costumes for this film, even though she had a terrible time crunch. So a lot of things were inspired because that's what they could get cheap from the Los Angeles Garment District. And they ended up going with the concept where the classic 20s and 30s flashback costumes would be cotton pastels they would have uh they would have classic patterns and they would have like really loud lines and then the modern costumes would be would be kinkier and shinier and would have plastics and zippers and uh instead of like buttons and hooks and so when you see the the translators wearing their old classic gray wool um that was meant to be their costume in the past (laughs) and their costumes in the future were meant to be the the pleather and gold and they were uh, they they flip flopped because they didn't want to perform their translation number in wool. That would have been super uncomfortable. Wasn't it also that uh, Claret is um, sorry? I can't pronounce your name. I'm always bad at names. 
but she's allergic to Chantel. Chantel. Chantel, sorry. She's allergic to wool, so she really like could not wear it for that long. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't allergic to the lining, thank goodness, but her wrists got all itchy. But uh, oh, sorry, I, I meant to talk about the the Ladies of Virtue costumes. I know that they were going for uh, like a slanted line on the old classic speakeasy costumes that they're wearing, and they were going for a real like uh, kinky dominatrix look for the modern. Uh, the, they wanted they wanted heaven to look more violent and more edgy in the future than it did in the past, and they wanted to make a. A, like a hard contrast on that. And when I say they, I just mean Millie and Mildred von Hildebrand and her team, which included, uh, dang it, Danielle. I cannot utterly remember the name of the costuming supervisors. There were like, there was Brooke, they had, they had gorgeous ensembles and they even helped with the costumes for, uh, for Stephanie for the road tour. Um, it was, it was a really costume heavy movie and there were so many, they were just, there was so much to do. I remember uh, just looking around at some of the costumes that didn't get used and then looking around at like, just a, a, someone had a trunk full of shoes that had just been scooped out of various Southwestern thrift shops and could have possibly been used as uh, a, a 1920s and 1930s pumps. And there was an entire box of ties and like a box of jackets and a whole row of wigs and, uh, when the ensemble call came in to set every day, they were just like, hey, pick, pick some stuff up and we're going to take, um, we're going we're gonna to document with photos and we're going to email them to Laura and she's going to approve costumes based on what you find. And I remember there was a call for like, I wasn't part of this scene in Riverside, but the call for after the fall happened with the reminder that everyone was going to have 1930s depression dust bowl costumes. So they said, come in, you know, uh, come in your bloomers and your like nightgowns and uh, light colored shifts that we can make dirty and we can rip them up. And um, I, they gave my friend Liz this giant hoop skirt. So she looked a little bit like Wick and she's in the circle and after the fall. Uh, the costumes for this movie were freaking brilliant and I'm so glad that Millie got to manage the costuming department on the film because she was just a costuming assistant and Don Don Ritz did the costumes for episode one but she felt that uh, she was perfectly able to manage the department without Don's help at all so she was looking forward to Alleluia because she's like oh it's my baby I get to make all the design calls she made a full SS uniform for uh for let me see for the agent and then Darren and Shawnee said, holy crap, we can't put a swastika on our character. And she was like, oh, is that too much? I'm from England. Were they going to make God a Nazi? I'm so confused. They were going to make God a, a you know, the, the fearless leader. And his, his army was going to look like the Gestapo. But yeah, I'm really glad that they toned down the costumes to just, you know, just like a, like a leather cub, not so much an SS soldier. They they go just shy of it though. I, I I like looking at the you know the painting of God that's in all the various offices in heaven, and it's like yeah, they really like this metaphor. They they really uh, they went right. Well, all the albums that are in his office are all his, and oh originally God. Darren, yeah, they're all his. And initially Darren was like, we wanted to have songs that he sings playing when the agent goes, but then we thought that that was taking it too far. It's amazing what too far looks like. 
to the guys. It's like, yeah, we can't literally put a swastika on our our. I, I was going to say we got, we kind of got off the idea of like favorite character and performance. I was going to circle back to that. But for my for myself, I would say uh, favorite character is definitely the translators, and I think favorite performance is uh, Ted Neely as the publicist. Same. Kind of like he's kind of like almost like um, Metatron, almost like from the Bible. He's like spreading the word and everything like that. And I actually have a whole long thing about like who the characters can kind of be based on. Carrie, how about yours? Same as C. Translators and Ted Neely. He's so good. Oh my God, that's such a good choice. Um, oh my God, this is such a hard question. This is like the favorite song question. I can't do it. Um, I think my favorite character is probably the librarian because I have a type um and also because I tech nine is having such a good time with it I just love I just think it's great he's so much fun um but my favorite performance I think the more I watch it is Barry Boswick like just crushing it just that's loving awesome. it. oh my god so uh good. so good uh I think my favorite performance uh Linda Smith as Cora. Um, we we treaded over this a little bit before, but that one scene where she just goes through all the motions of, and then she eventually, you know, drinks the Kool Aid and having that such powerful visual range. Um, and I, I I thought I thought she was I I loved I loved her narrative arc, uh, and that that's just the half of her just acting and like and her and like I like the performances she gave. Um, in terms of my favorite character, I mean, uh, I, I would be cheating to say Lucifer because obviously, but um, I think I got, I really got a newfound appreciation um, for the for the ticket keeper, uh, specifically through their interactions, especially at the end, um, and how uh, their relationship as uh, like cohorts or codependents versus the very uh authoritarian and almost antagonistic relationship between Paul Savino or God and the agent where like God still says, Oh, you're my son, but they also gives him a book. And then the bottom of the book it says, um, to my favorite lapdog or some uh something along those lines where it's still very condescending. And meanwhile, like Lucifer takes um, to, the ticket keeper into this trust, and you see this incredible relief uh, and warmth that that comes over the ticket keeper uh, when he's actually drawn into it. And, and it's like, oh, it's so sweet. These guys are so wholesome. I ship them. They're awesome. So, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I really want like a whole separate, <laughs> just like recorded conversation of live. Chris and Terrence and a bottle of alcohol and just go into like a deep dive about heaven and hell after all of this. I'd say let's bet on who cries first, but I know it's going to be tea. If I'm sitting at that table, I can promise you it's me. I cry first. <laughs> Hands down. No, I'm certain. I'm certain that he is more of a little bitch. <laughs> I'm certain that he will cry first. He has been waiting 40 years to cry. <laughs> he needs it. All right, who's left on the uh, character and performance question? Me. Um, character, I'd say watchword. Um, 
not that not that I, I not that I think that his perform like I love his performance and stuff like that, but nothing compares to what I have deemed like my favorites. But character wise, the watchword was just such like this like cool weird entity that they threw in there that I I I love his character and it also just helps that it's Barry Bostwick. So that just makes it better. Um performance translators funny little dictation machines because that whole thing is also we out of place like weird things that just fits um especially with like the chewing gum and them throwing the papers everywhere and just the chaos of their office and how it sort of matches the whole chaos of heaven and it just highlights everything and brings it together really well first time i heard that song I jumped on my bed so high, I hit my head on the ceiling. It was amazing. The translator's song was so cool. And I learned the dance with Alex immediately because, you know, as soon as we heard it, we were like, oh my God, that clapping, we need to do it. <laughs> we're teaching people in line at the road shows. It was super fun. Dance in the Ark was, ah, uh, you guys remember the flyers that had the, the steps to the Ark? Yeah, definitely. They were really working on making that like the time warp. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Hey, I do it when I watch the movie. I Me still too. Do yeah. Darren wanted to do this nod to John and Daniel by having a, a, a like a Daniel character. Of course, the actor who played Daniel in episode one is far too old to reprise his role. But uh, he wanted to put a Daniel walking around heaven with a little white balloon instead of a red one. Aww. And when he told us that it was, it was a theater full of people and they all made that sound that you just made and he goes, see, that's why I didn't do it. God, I love them. I love them so much. They're so great. So ratings? I give it two hallelujahs and an amen. Same. Well, I, I know for myself, it hits all six cylinders of hell and it hits on all sevens of heaven. So I'm giving this a 13 out of 10. It's fantastic one of my all-time favorite films no lie i love that i love that i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give it 10 out of 10 banned books because that's what i like <laughs> i love some band i love some forbidden knowledge that's what i'm all about i give it lordy oh lordy oh lordy my lord a minus i don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh for me uh Shout out to the librarian. This movie hits all sevens out of seven. I have nothing cute to say. I just love this fucking movie. But if I had to like go off of anything, I uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, uh, ten out of ten poison chalices or what have you. Uh, any last thoughts before this train leaves and we go back to hell? Yes. <laughs> I. My 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 thought is, I love this movie so much. Like I like Devil's Carnival. I love this one. People need to go out and watch this film. Whether or not you care for Devil's Carnival, please watch Alleluia. It is fantastic. I hope you love it as much as we do. And here's hoping that the person on Instagram is well informed and it's actually in further production. Please don't get our hopes up if it's not real. I want one so bad. I want it more than I think. Or if they're confusing this project with the Asylum musical, then we can all save our pennies and watch it in Manhattan. <laughs>
Um, I want to cap a, a lot of this off by thanking Libby. I've never met you in person, but but thank you for doing this, especially because you you were fucking in this and you just brought a whole other level to this that none of us could really contribute to because we weren't there. Um, but I also want to thank C, Carrie, Layla, Liv, like you guys, this was fucking awesome. Like I said, it would just be two horror nerds back and forth ranting about this but um y'all just the conversation that you guys brought to the past three episodes really just took this in a whole other spectacular fucking direction i'm stoked you guys yeah i'm stoked you guys were here i completely agree thank you so much you are so welcome thank you for the opportunity and i kind of want to thank rika too even though she's not here and not involved uh but without rika we would not have had like a good tenth of the comments we made, and we would not have a German authority on language. And yeah, when I met Rika, it was in a dingy Phoenix bar for Donner Party, and she had this gorgeous tattoo. Well, you guys know she has a gorgeous tattoo on her back. So I said, excuse me, I, I, I hate when people do this to me, so I really apologize for now doing it to you. But your tattoo is gorgeous, where did you get it? And she goes, Bremen. And I was like, pardon? Germany? And she goes, yeah, Bremen. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you, are you living there? She goes, yes, yes, I manage a restaurant in Bremen. And I was like, what are you doing here? She goes, oh, I just came in to see the band. I really love them. And I'm like, oh my God, she's so, so perfect. She, she flew from Germany to see a band in a Phoenix bar. Yeah, she had never even seen Repo or The Devil's Carnival. She just loved American Murder Song that much. Again, the fucking fans and family that the, that these guys have unintentionally created. Yes, yes. On that note, <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Cast Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And uh, again, we want to thank all of our wonderful guests uh, for being on here, sharing their insights, sharing their wonderful stories. Um, and we want to thank uh, everyone who's listening to this for. Uh, being on this journey with us. Uh, so if you made it to the end of the episode after two hours and still haven't watched Alleluia, please just go watch and, and share it with your friends, share with your family, share with everyone. It's it's awesome. And then uh, hopefully if we ever launch that Patreon, we'll cover more. Um, yeah. But but yes, until then, you know, stay safe out there. Uh, enjoy Alleluia. I haven't watched it yet. And uh, don't forget. Always. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Always hallelujah. Always. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs>